had made their way through the um, uh, uh, the evening's weather, and, and, and it's even way more impressive today to see that, uh, the continuing crowd. Last night I was able to uh, sit back and not pay any attention to the strictures that I'd emailed people about uh, uh, presenters taking 20 minutes and discussants taking uh, 10 minutes. But uh, now we've got a succession of, of, of panels. So we're really going to have to stick to the time limit, and you'll have to rely pretty heavily on the uh, program for very nice characterizations of the uh, participants. But the paper giver on John Adams is Alan uh, Taylor of the University of California, Davis. Uh, I could not recommend more highly, just for an absorbing read, his uh, uh, book, uh, William Cooper's Town, on uh, the two generations of the Coopers, the second one being Fenimore Cooper, which uh, uh, was something the Pulitzer Committee agreed with. And the commentators are our New Jersey um, uh, neighbor, uh, Jan Ellen Lewis from um, uh, 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 the Newark branch of Rutgers, and Richard Allen Ryerson, uh, who uh, it may even want to say a word or two about his base in Washington Crossing, Pennsylvania, since I don't think people know quite what. Uh, Should do, you do this now? No, no. I think maybe, <laughs> maybe as a prelude or a coda to your remarks. Let me, let me, let me yield to you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Fred. Um, I, I marveled last night at Gordon Wood's presentation to manage to read every other word and be so lucid. Um, so, but I can't pull off that strategy, so I'm going to read every other page. Uh, but you can go on the website and find out what I say on the even-numbered pages. Uh, my own ongoing work is about the relationship of the early American Republic to its neighbors, and especially its neighbor to the north, the British Empire, uh, as an opportunity to read the ideological and social consequences of the American Revolution in the, the relationship of people living along this borderland. What difference did it make when people passed back and forth from the British Empire to the American Republic and vice versa? And so when I got this uh, opportunity to speak about John Adams, it gave me the chance to investigate his own thinking about the Republic's place uh, in the world of nations, and especially its relationship with the two dominant superpowers of the day, Great Britain and France. And I was pleased to find uh, that perhaps the, the, the earliest substantive letter that John Adams wrote, which survives, he, he reflects upon the nature of an American empire. Drafted two decades before the revolution, the letter expressed a precocious confidence that the colonies would soon inherit the power and the glory of Great Britain. He cited the naval potential and the prodigious population growth of colonial America to predict, quote, the transfer of the great seat of empire into America. He concluded, quote, it will be easy to obtain the mastery of the seas, and then the united force of all Europe will not be able to subdue us. The only way to keep us from setting up for ourselves is to disunite us, divide a impera, keep us in distinct colonies, and then some great men in each colony 
desiring the monarchy of the whole, they will destroy each other's influence and keep the country in equilibrio. Now, I think that in this early letter, Adams expressed a constellation of themes that consistently characterized his thinking about public leadership in the Republic. He linked a dream of empire to a pervasive fear of an interacting trinity of horrors, disunion, aristocracy, and foreign intervention. Throughout his political career, Adams counterpoised the threat of regional divisions to the potential greatness of a united America. He also persistently dreaded the voracious ambition of regional great men as the potential engine of internal rupture. And he suspected European designs to subvert American potential by cultivating those men of reckless regional ambition. Fear rather than assurance, insecurity rather than ambition, drove his defensive pursuit of empire. Now, Adams famously suffused his political writings with schemes meant to contain and manage the ominous power of an American aristocracy. And I think it's easy to misunderstand what Adams meant by aristocracy. And he certainly understood that the new United States did not have a titled aristocracy of the British mode. But he used aristocracy primarily in functional terms. His aristocrats were any group of men of superior talents and ambition, which revolutionary America certainly possessed in abundance. Inherited status and wealth helped but fundamentally, his aristocracy was a meritocracy, comprised of anyone capable of manipulating the common people of lesser abilities and aspirations. If managed properly by carefully designed constitutional institutions, that inevitable aristocracy might, in pursuit of public honors, serve the common good. But if left to their own ambitious devices, the aristocrats would pull apart the American empire in their violent contentions for ever greater power and wealth. Now, Adams certainly was qualified for such an aristocracy. He possessed an exalted education, driving ambition, and formidable talents. And so this fear has a personal psychological energy to it. He saw in other great men the dangers he suspected in himself. But he sought to serve the Republican Empire by spotlighting its dangers from men so very much like himself while denying his own complicity. In later celebrating his 1755 letter, Adams insisted, quote, I never engaged in public affairs for my own interest, pleasure, envy, jealousy, avarice or ambition or even the desire of fame. In every considerable transaction of my public life, I have invariably acted according to my best judgment for the public good, and I can look up to God for the sincerity of my intentions. Now, it's certainly true that Adams often sacrificed his interest and fortune to protect the public good. 
but he always expected and sought fame, and he frequently expressed envy and jealousy of others in his political cohort. Only by constant battle against other aristocrats could John Adams protect his own soul, as well as the Republic, from the temptations of aristocracy. But that combative drive troubled his relationships with almost all other men of ambition and ability. The qualities that endear Adams to historians, his prolix writing, biting honesty, and relentless independence, offended most of his political colleagues in his own day. If at his worst as a political collaborator, John Adams shone as a political theorist. An especially acute observer, Adams crystallized anxieties widespread in his founding generation of American leaders. And I think this is a point that Gordon made last night, that they cannot see the future of a secure and powerful United States, that they are preoccupied with the immediate dangers to this new and vulnerable country. In a particularly forceful form, Adams expressed a pervasive set of contradictory expectations. First, that collective expansion might be the antidote to regional resentments and conflicts. Second, that imperial dimensions might divert aristocratic ambitions from making regional trouble. But third, that such expansion might instead ramify aristocratic energy to produce an American Caesar who would destroy the republic. In almost the same breath, Adams and most of the other founders shifted back and forth, sometimes dreading and sometimes celebrating an imperial scale between finding safety or destruction in expansion. Adams and his fellow founders pursued an expansive American empire from the start as the best means to insulate the United States from a world of predatory European powers. To promote expansion, they did not emphasize the commercial benefits of that expansion. Instead, they dwelled on their dread of neighboring colonies held by European empires as potential bases for subverting the American Republic and Union by some combination of invasion with the corruption and manipulation of regional or partisan divisions within America. Fearing their own internal fault lines, these defensive imperialists sought to maximize American territory as the means to eliminate or preclude British and French colonies on the borders of the fragile new United States. Only their own empire could permit a neutral isolation from European conflicts that otherwise threatened to reach into and pry apart the United States through the medium of contentious aristocrats. Now, in pursuing this particular political vision, Adams married a regional loyalty to New England with an expansive vision of continental empire. As a New Englander, he found other Americans relatively wanting in the virtue needed to sustain a republic. Southern gentlemen in particular seemed insufficiently egalitarian 
and excessively passionate, indolent, and domineering to Adams. But Adams understood that New England faced a bleak and embattled future without an American Union. He hoped, therefore, to situate New England and himself within an extensive, progressive, and powerful empire that could ramify his own and his region's influence on a continental scale. As a Yankee nationalist, Adams especially longed to construct an empire to the north. He was preoccupied, especially during the Revolution, by securing the Newfoundland fishery and the Canadian provinces of the British Empire. Duty to the Union obliged Adams to satisfy the southern states with expansion into Florida and Louisiana. Love of New England and fear of southern power compelled a special drive for northern acquisitions to at least keep pace, preserving a regional balance of interest in the Confederacy. Uh, I'm now going to skip over most of the, the middle part of the paper, which explores Adams during the Revolution, and makes the argument that early and often he is uh, pushing for independence ahead of most of his colleagues, and he is linking this to expansion, especially the invasion and conquest of Canada, which of course fell short. Uh, what's striking to me is that quicker and better than uh, any other congressman, Adams understood that Americans needed to prepare a diplomatic place in a world order dominated by the contending superpowers of the Atlantic world. He insisted in 1776, quote, that these three measures, independence, confederation, and negotiations with foreign powers, particularly France, ought to go hand in hand and be adopted altogether. That independence would be meaningless if the United States forsook the direct domination of the British Empire for the indirect control of France. To sustain true independence, the United States needed to operate beside rather than within the European balance of power, which enlisted smaller states in alliances dominated by the powerful for frequent wars. Adams argued that in seeking immediate aid from France, that Americans must avoid mortgaging their future independence as a neutral nation. Quote, that our real, if not our nominal, independence would consist in our neutrality. If we united with either nation, meaning France or Britain, in any future war, we must become too subordinate and dependent on that nation and should be involved in all European wars as we have been hitherto. That foreign powers would find means to corrupt our people, to influence our councils, and in fine we should be little better than puppets danced on the wires of the cabinets of Europe. We should be the sport of European intrigue and politics. As always, in this quote, as in others, Adams looped back from European power politics to the internal vulnerability of a diverse and large republic to factional divisions. Weakness within required power without. It's also striking that in preparation for the peace negotiations with Great Britain, Congress found it very difficult 
to reach a consensus on what their terms should be. Independence, certainly, but what sort of boundaries? And for want of the power to make tough decisions at regional expense, Congress expected the British to make expansive concessions, geographic concessions, to satisfy every region. Southerners wanted borders stretching south to the 31st parallel, if not to the Gulf of Mexico, and west to the Mississippi, with the right to convey produce down that river to the Gulf of Mexico. New Englanders, of course, wanted the Newfoundland fisheries, at least, if not possession of Canada and Nova Scotia. Congress needed most, if not all, of British North America to sustain their union, or so they believed. In 1780, Adams explained, quote, if a peace should unhappily be made leaving England in possession of Canada, Nova Scotia, the Floridas, or any one spot of ground in America, they will be perpetually encroaching upon the states of America, end quote. Leaving any of these colonies in British hands would, quote, only lay a foundation for future wars, in other words, the bold territorial demands derived from a consciousness of weakness, a fear that the Republic could not survive unless the British Empire was entirely removed from North America, from Florida, and from Canada. But there was also danger from France. France did not support American claims to Canada or to fishing rights on the banks of, the, of Newfoundland or to all of the West, meaning then west of the Mississippi. Adams believed that France hoped by these restrictions at sea and by land to perpetuate sources of friction that would provoke future wars where a relatively weak United States would again need French help. Cutting to his presidency, Adams struggled keep the United States neutral as Europe erupted in renewed warfare that again pitted France against Great Britain. That traditional enmity took on a new ideological edge as the French embarked on a violent revolution that introduced a radical Republican regime culminating in the execution of their king in 1793. Like Washington, Adams recognized that a prolonged peace would permit the United States to grow in population and wealth to become too formidable for any European power to disturb. Now, although during his presidency, initially supportive of bellicose measures against France, President Adams soon began to war worry that war with France would create a virtual alliance with Great Britain, and that this alliance would rupture the American Union and destroy Republican government. The Federalist-dominated Congress passed increasingly unpopular measures to support, suppress domestic dissent, to levy new taxes, and to build a substantial army and navy. Those measures provoked protests, even riots, in much of rural America and especially in Pennsylvania. In response to those acts, Republican-controlled legislatures in Kentucky and Virginia passed resolves to nullify the new federal laws against domestic criticism. Virginia even purchased firearms 
and establish arsenals in anticipation of a civil war. Taking a hard line, Alexander Hamilton proposed employing the American army under his command to, quote, put Virginia to the test of resistance. Now, all of this appalled Adams, and he concluded that Hamilton and his Federalist supporters were the very aristocrats that Adams had dreaded since 1755, men of talent, wealth, and overbearing ambition who would threaten the American Union by their aggressive pursuit of domination. In 1799, Adams defied the Hamiltonians to suspend military preparation and, instead, renewed negotiations with France that a year later culminated in a peace treaty restoring American neutrality. Adams ultimately defended the distinctively American foreign policy he had promoted since 1775. Quote, this principle was that we should make no treaties of alliance with any European power, that we should consent to none but treaties of commerce, that we should separate ourselves as far as possible and as long as possible from all European politics and wars. By rupturing his own Federalist Party, Adams lost his bid for re-election to Thomas Jefferson, who succeeded to the presidency in 1801. But in defeat, Adams claimed a moral victory, defending the Union by reviving neutrality and defeating aristocrats. Now, in retirement, Adams continued to worry about the Union, and he saw danger from both Southern Republicans and from New England Federalists. And he continued to hope that renewed territorial expansion might solve these regional tensions. And so he vigorously supported the War of 1812. He assured Jefferson in 1812, quote, I believe with you that another conquest of Canada will quiet the Indians forever and be as great a blessing to them as to us. At the end of 1812, Adams rued the botched military campaign, which he blamed on a failure to mobilize sufficient troops and armed vessels to command the Great Lakes. He boasted, quote, I would have made short work with Canada and incorporated it into the Union. And Adams expressed frustration in the peace treaty that ended the war in late 1814 without smashing the British navigation system or subtracting Canada from the British Empire. Haunted by the persistent power of the British Empire, in 1816, Adams warned Jefferson, quote, Britain will never be our friend till we are her master. This will happen in less time than you and I have been struggling with her power, provided we remain united. Aye, there's the rub. I fear there will be greater difficulties to preserve our union than you and I, our fathers, brothers, friends, disciples, and sons, have had to form it. As in his precocious letter of 1755, so too, near life's end in 1816, Adams insisted that only an imperial superiority in North America could protect an independent American Republic from British domination. But to achieve that power, Americans needed to transcend the regionalism that threatened to dissolve the Union in civil war. 
And of course, Adams was right to worry, for the Union did dissolve into bloody civil war in 1861. Ultimately, Americans fought over the very issue that had so alarmed John Adams for so long, of how to regulate territorial expansion to retain a regional balance of power within the Union and to constrain the centrifugal power of regional elites. Thank you. Well, uh, all of you who are familiar with Alan Taylor's frequent, frequent reviews in the New Republic will know how strongly he believes that the past was a very different place and how skeptical he generally is of those who would distort the past for present purposes. And if you remember these reviews, as I do, you will appreciate how surprised I was by the opening of his wonderful paper, Adams and American Leadership, Aristocracy and Empire, in which he describes John Adams's prediction of the transfer of the great seat of empire into America. What topic could possibly be more timely that could possibly be more timely than Adams' ruminations on the questions of American empire? According to Taylor, as early as 1755, Adams believed that an American empire might be the solution to America's internal and external problems both. And he's imagining this even before there is an America. Talk about prescience. Um, the great external problems were posed by England, France, and to a lesser extent, Spain, European powers with vast overseas empires. More than two decades before the Declaration of Independence, Adams was thinking not simply in national terms, but in imperial ones. Only an empire could hold its own with other empires. Of course, this was going to be an empire with a difference. Not a European-style empire with a parent country and dependent colonies, but an extended empire of states knit into a federal union. Uh, Peter Onuf has pointed out how, how revolution in other contexts, uh, Peter Onuf has pointed out how revolutionary this vision of nation-slash-empire was. New states brought into the Union on equal rather than subordinate terms, at least for the white population. In a footnote to his paper, Taylor observes that in this, Adams's vision was similar to Jefferson's. And like Jefferson, Adams believed that, as Taylor puts it, quote, collective expansion might be the antidote to regional resentments and conflicts that imperial dimensions might divert aristocratic ambitions from making regional trouble. Jefferson hoped famously that America might become an empire for liberty. Always more jaundiced, Adams hoped that empire might protect liberty by preventing or preoccupying aristocracy. He seemed certain that a small nation would fall in on itself collapsing into faction and creating the circumstances conducive to the rise of an American Caesar. Perhaps an empire stood a better chance, or perhaps not. Taylor concludes his paper by quoting one of Adams's late life letters to Jefferson. Quote, I know it is high treason to express a doubt of the perpetual duration of our vast American empire and our free institutions, 
But I am sometimes Cassandra enough to dream that another Hamilton, another Burr, might rend this mighty fabric in twain. This fear, or a version of it, proved prescient, for as Taylor writes, the Union did dissolve in bloody civil war in 1861. Taylor's moral, if there is one, and Taylor tends to write in the ironic mode more, more than the moralistic one, uh, Taylor's moral would be, is that, as Adams feared, America was almost undone by empire, as, quote, Americans fought over the very issue that had so long exercised John Adams, the relationship of territorial expansion to the regional balance of power within the Union. This reasoning, I think, is both true and slippery. Yes, America was almost undone by the conflict over expansion into the West. Drew McCoy, focusing on Jefferson and Madison, is particularly brilliant on this issue. But where's the connection to aristocracy? Are we to accept Adams's claim that Southern planters were a domineering aristocracy? Both slavery and secession were widely popular in the South. Likewise, the cries in the North for free soil and free labor resonated with the masses, not necessarily the elite. I'm not sure then that Taylor, and he's, you know, he was only given 40 minutes and he had to cut, cut it down to 20, uh, so I'm not sure that Taylor's fully elucidated the connection between aristocracy and empire. The missing piece of the argument, I think, seems to be ideology, the medium through which interest is refracted. In another context, Adams once noted, the people are Clarissa, but seduced by what? Visions of democracy, perhaps, which was not necessarily the thing itself. Perhaps this is another version of what Gordon Wood has described as, quote, the encompassing liberal tradition, which has mitigated and often obscured the real social antagonisms of American politics. Taylor and Adams, too, are both extremely insightful on questions of diplomacy and interest. Taylor lets us see the world through Adams's eye as it reflects upon questions of geopolitics and national and regional interest. Quote, we often think of the new republic as born innocent of imperial ambition, Taylor writes. In fact, from the beginning, Adams and his peers intertwined the pursuit of empire with the defense of independence. Adams' virtue and the source of his leadership, if we are to credit him with any, is his recognition that he is no innocent, or at least his fellow Americans aren't. Taylor begins his paper by suggesting contemporary relevance. Not only the passage I have just quoted, but several others, some of which he cut out of his paper, uh, his presentation this morning, including denominating the invasion of Canada in 1775 self-consciously as a, quote, preemptive, preemptive war against British efforts to rally all the numerous tribes of Indians extending along the frontiers of all the colonies to take up the hatchet and spread blood and fire among the inhabitants. Yet Taylor ends with the Civil War, as if this and only this was what American empire was leading to. The crisis of American empire reached reached several decades before the time when most historians believe the age of empire began. 
While reading Taylor's essay, I have been reminded of Gordon Wood's wonderful discussion of the relevance and irrelevance of John Adams. There are many interesting points of comparison between his discussion and Taylor's. But I'm left wondering about the relevance and irrelevance of Adams's views on empire. Perhaps with his fears of the United States collapsing into faction, perhaps his fears of the United States collapsing into faction and regionalism are irrelevant. It's hard to imagine another civil war. Yet the general terms with which Adams was working, the connection between empire and independence, could hardly be more timely. As Taylor hints, some of us react instinctively against the juxtaposition of empire and liberty, to use Jefferson's formulation, thinking the one the antithesis of the other. Others among us think the juxtaposition necessary and true. These are precisely the grounds on which contemporary American foreign policy is being fiercely debated. In this context, Adams' lifelong worrying about empire and his recognition that empire was not unproblematic may make him relevant still. Thank you. Uh, before I begin, perhaps I should, uh, at Fred's request, just say a little bit about the David Library because it may be a place you're unfamiliar with. Uh, this is a small, uh, highly concentrated uh, research library uh, about a mile north of where Washington crossed the Delaware. Uh, it's in Pennsylvania, and it is largely a microfilm library. And I have to say, uh, I didn't build this collection up, so I can say it modestly, it is a magnificent microfilm library has about 10,000 reels of material, uh, very rich in British holdings, uh, American government records, uh, papers, uh, that is manuscripts of, uh, microfilm manuscript paper collections, uh, early American newspapers, uh, just about anything you can imagine. A, a really tremendous resource. And we do have fellowships. So uh, any of you who are interested in researching the American Revolution should keep us in mind. Uh, we love to see people from far and near come and use our resources. Well, let me turn to the subject at hand. After last evening's stimulating discussion of George Washington as a Republican monarch, it would have only seemed natural to pursue the same concept with respect to John Adams because no matter how unmonarchic-like his rotundity appeared to his fellows, he wrote more on Republican monarchy, and more distinctively, than any other American. But this would be too easy, too unchallenging a task for us, and especially for me, as it is a subject I've long considered. Alan Taylor has called on us to consider John Adams in quite another, and at least to me, somewhat more novel light. He wishes us to see one of the most traditional, old-fashioned, and in many ways isolated of the nation's founders as a bold imperialist and as someone who, in his imperial drive, was more like than unlike his contemporaries. Further, he sees Adams' own 60-year struggle with the temptations of American expansion, of American empire, as characteristic of America's revolutionary and early national periods. What is most challenging 
in all this is Taylor's view that Adam's own uh, seeking expansion, not for its own sake, but as the only possible antidote to Republican disunion, is common to most of the leaders of the early republic. And further, that Adams's and the nation's use of expansion to hold a fragile union together had no real temporal limitation, but continued until the death of the oldest revolutionaries and for the ensuing generations, at least until the Civil War. All of this is, for me, a rather different way of looking at John Adams than I've been used to. But I find it both, uh, I find both the general argument uh, and Taylor's paper as a whole appealing in several ways. First, Adams has been viewed as an outlier among the founders for far too long. A man who was too negative, too cranky and choleric, and perhaps too neurotic to have much in common with the brilliant political generation that created the new American nation. From the 1790s on, as Gordon Wood famously argued some 35 years ago, Adams was increasingly isolated and even irrelevant, a view that has been prevalent for fully 35 years in the profession and perhaps among the American public for some 200 years. So, as an ardent admirer of John Adams, through thick and thin, and with Adams there's always a lot of thick, I find Taylor's restoration of Adams to the American political mainstream, even to a mainstream of desperate Republican imperialists, to be most gratifying. I also like several of the details of the argument, particularly that Adams was an especially acute observer, offering a crystallization of anxieties widespread in his founding generation of American leaders. And again, that Adams, quicker and better than any other congressman, understood that Americans needed to prepare a diplomatic place in the world order dominated by the contending superpowers of the Atlantic. Yet for all the pleasure I feel in reading these compliments to a founder whom, whom I have such a high regard, I do have some nagging reservations. The first is Taylor's argument that Adams was in both his quest for empire and his hopes that expansion would quiet restless Americans, much like the other leading founders. This may be so, but in this paper, we largely hear Adams's voice. We don't hear Washington's, Hamilton's, Jefferson's, or Madison's uh, to any significant degree. He does, uh, on occasion, uh, mention agreements, specific agreements, uh, between Adams and Washington and Jefferson, but does not really explore them. We need more here, not because there is any doubt that expansion had its appeal to all five of these leaders and to many others, or because there is any doubt that all five understood that expansion could quiet domestic discord, but because without direct substantial comparisons, we cannot know if the several founders saw expansion and empire in really similar ways. Take, for example, Taylor's especially fine expression of Adams's mixture of hopes and doubts for empire early in his paper. Adams, he says, thought collective expansion might be the antidote to regional resentments and conflicts, that imperial dimensions might divert aristocratic ambitions from making regional trouble, but that such expansion might instead 
unleash aristocratic energy to produce an American Caesar who would destroy the Republic. I think we can all guess how long such a thoughtful, nuanced appreciation of expansion would last in Donald Rumsfeld's Pentagon. But would it have appealed that much more in just the terms Adams expressed it to either Hamilton or Jefferson or Madison? Or did each of these leaders display their own distinctive sensitivity to the appeals and the perils of expansion? One way uh, to address this question would be to tie Adams' many expressions of support for or doubt about empire to concrete events, not only to the Peace of 1783 that he helped negotiate and later negotiations over the Atlantic fisheries and the opening of the Mississippi River, but also to the Louisiana Purchase, the War of 1812, the Adams-Onus Treaty of 1819, and finally, at least in his life, the Missouri Crisis. Perhaps if we could hear Adams' voice and the voices of other founders discussing these events, we could better judge if Adams does indeed crystallize the anxieties about both regional tensions and uh, opportunities for expansion felt by the other founders, or if he had a rather different view of these matters. We do, after all, have Adams' own request of a friend in 1812, which Taylor places at the head of his paper, that he, Adams, not be called the founder of the American empire. What does Adams intend by saying this? Is he simply and rather uncharacteristically being modest about his role in creating the rising American empire? Or is he saying that in some way the American empire of 1812 is not what he had in mind? when he negotiated so hard for as much land and as many rights as he could get back in 1782? Or does he perhaps have something else entirely in mind? A little later in his paper, incidentally, uh, Taylor says without any real explanation that Adams satirically insisted that he never wished to be called the founder of the American empire. I confess I've not read the full letter in which Adams makes this request but I should think it a most uncharacteristic Adams letter if he is making this request satirically. Despite these reservations, however, I would like to be shown more fully and in more detail that Adams was strongly attracted to expansion and that he shared this interest with the other founders and in the way that they did. And I am not really all that skeptical that he did. In fact, I rather vaguely remember from my work at the Adams Papers uh, at least a decade ago that at one point when he was a diplomat in Europe, another American suggested some seemingly slight limitation on America's right to take some international action in a situation that was far in the future and far from America's current territory. It may have perhaps have been in the Pacific. Adams was instantly furious at the suggestion and he asserted that America must never accept any limitation on its powers and opportunities, no matter how distant in time or place, from its current <coughs> concerns, unless it was absolutely forced to do so. Whether Adams should be associated with empire or was simply an extremely ardent nationalist can probably be debated. But his devotion to the nation's future, even to its very long-range future, is evident from his 1755 letter that Taylor discusses at the opening uh, of the paper and all the way 
to his death in 1826. I want to close by asking a general question that moves far beyond the early national period. Taylor has emphasized early American expansion as an antidote to disunion, and we can certainly see in America's repeated invasions of Canada, or, or thoughts of that at least, in the Adams-Onis Treaty, in the balancing of the Mexican War with the demand of 54-40 or fight in the American Northwest, that expansion as a way of silencing regional discord was alive and well at least until the eve of the Civil War. My question for Alan or anyone here is, are we finally over that now? Or do we still seek expansion as a way of avoiding, facing, and dealing with discord at home? Put another way, are we now a mature enough culture to take pleasure and satisfaction in what we do have and to deal with our own problems? Or are we still trying to run away from the problems by moving into somebody else's neighborhood? Thank you. Well, that's a fascinating sequence of, of examination of a facet of uh, John Adams that certainly is not, uh, I, I think, part of the, the, the image of Adams for some of the people here whose main source may have been the um, uh, David McClellan's uh, uh, biography and somewhat idealized account. I want to say something in transition to opening the floor for what will be a brief discussion this time. Uh, in my traffic capacity, and then something very briefly uh, borrowing from my colleague here uh, about, about Adams himself. As traffic cop, uh, to keep things going, we're, we're going to proceed to Jefferson pretty much on the schedule uh, indicated, may, with maybe just a little bit of time for people to scurry out and get coffee and so on. Uh, but. After the Jefferson session, we'll have a half-hour break. Uh, and then um, the, after that one-hour session, there'll be box lunches available. Uh, and all of this will make for a lot of room for give and take and informal back and forth, some of it not in this, uh, in this room. And then uh, in the afternoon, after the Hamilton session, uh, we're really pretty open-ended for uh, general discussion. And there'll be three people to take off from that. Uh, what I want to say on the Adams front is, uh, is simply to read the concluding passage from another very penetrating discussion of, of, uh, of Adams that very, by Alan Taylor that very few people will have come into. It's in a volume edited by the Columbia historian Alan Brinkley or co-edited by him, The Reader's Companion to the American Presidency. And the final three or four lines of this, I think, also direct us toward his rotundity and his complexity. And here's how Alan uh, concludes uh, about the second president of the United States. The same qualities of biting honesty, prolix writing, and determined independence that so offended his colleagues have endeared Adams to scholars. Scholars delight in his vivid quotations, exhaustive documentation, and utter inability to hide his feelings or cover his tracks. He is such a remarkably instructive and cooperative historical source, precisely because he was so difficult for most of his 
uh, contemporaries to work with. Now, I'm not sure I would want that in my student evaluations if I was one of your, one of your students at, at Davis. So uh, the floor is open for about 10 minutes of give and take, and, and, um, and there'll be many more opportunities before the day is over. Did you want to respond to anything? No, I'd, I'd prefer to hear mm -hmm. thoughts from the audience. Mm -hmm. We have a we have a, an Adams biographer in the audience who's even written on Adams's medical history. Do you have any thoughts? Yet? Yeah, that, that's a very helpful question. Uh, one of the reasons why Adams and his contemporaries are so driven to maximize the geographic scale of the United States very early on is they don't want to have the sort of institutions that they associated with the corruption of the British Empire. They don't want to have a very large standing army. And the fear is that if they have powerful neighbors to their south and to their north, that they will be compelled to play the kind of imperial game uh, that Great Britain had played. And it created all of these structures of, of uh, uh, patronage and uh, clientage that uh, had distorted the society and prevented a republic. So what, what's, what's fascinating to me in, in looking at these founders, and especially at Adams, is the ways in which they want an empire, but it's a distinctive kind of empire that will avoid the structures of the British Empire. Uh, and in order to do that, they need to, to get the British Empire out of North America so that they don't have to compete on the same kind of terms. Uh, and, and this goes to a question that Dick raised. I, I certainly think that the other founders are pretty much on Adams' same wavelength here, with the exception, of course, of Alexander Hamilton, who had no problem in trying to replicate by and large, the institutions of Great Britain and, and didn't see those forms of corruption as, as something that we should be concerned about. Question back here, Fred. Uh, okay, from the back. Thank you. To what extent uh, was uh, the issue of empire involved in the falling out between the Adams and his uh, former friend, the historian Lucio de Swan? Well, I'm not so sure that it's empire per se, but it's certainly she was very upset um, with Adams's position on the issues that Gordon Wood laid out uh, so nicely last night, that she very much wanted an, a non-monarchical style in the government of the republic, and she saw John Adams as really making too many compromises with that uh, particular approach. Now, Adams was positioned, I think, got distorted by the Jeffersonian Republicans as if he uh, very much was an admirer of monarchy, that he um, very much wanted to do this basically to suppress the popular voice. 
And I think consistently for Adams, what he was most concerned about were peoples that we would call elites, that he called aristocracy. And he saw monarchy, an element of monarchy in the government, at least stylistically, as uh, essential really to protect the public from these sorts of uh, regional aristocrats. And Mercy Otis Warren just thought he was on the wrong track there. Question? That's a good question. It's, it's something that the founders debated amongst themselves, and they were of two minds. On the one hand, uh, there is this millennial ideological imperative to spread the institutions of liberty, and it's the hope that this can be shared with other peoples. On the other hand, they weren't so sure that the French Canadians were up to, culturally up to the challenge of participating with these kinds of institutions. So there, was con there were considerable qualms during the revolution and also during the War of 1812 of, do we really want to absorb a culture that is so different from the culture of the United States? Most of these people don't speak English. They're Catholic. They're not literate. Um, are they qualified to participate in Republican institutions? And uh, Adams himself went back and forth on this issue. <coughs> Uh, and the same debate occurs with the acquisition of Louisiana uh, as to what degree can the Republican institutions be immediately extended to the territory of Louisiana. And it's, it's something that continues to be debated as the United States will expand into uh, the northern provinces of Mexico. Question there. Uh, Dick Ryerson may be able to answer this better, better than I can. Uh, I don't notice uh, much of a discussion of slavery per se in Adams's writings. But uh, yes, I have to say I haven't seen a lot of that either, and that is perhaps a little surprising because he uh, was very strongly opposed to slavery. Uh, but it, it does seem when he writes about the nation as a whole, and he writes about international events, um, he tends to write largely as if there isn't any slavery in the United States, or, or, or that if there is, it somehow doesn't really matter. Um, and this, uh, it, it's somehow below his radar. I don't quite know why. It's even below the radar of John Quincy Adams, uh, fairly well into John Quincy Adams' career, until in the uh, 18-teens, uh, the younger Adams finds he really can't avoid uh, dealing with this, particularly as he gets to know John Calhoun pretty well. He suddenly realizes there's, there's no way of ducking this. But the father, the senior Adams, um, it seems to proceed largely as if this is not uh, a particular problem. And when he makes predictions, as he often does, as you mentioned, for disaster that may come to America, it seldom seems to have anything to do with slavery. It usually has to do with factionalism, aristocracy, so forth, corrupted elites among free white men. 
I have a session concluding question as a student of the presidency, and that is I find Adams a puzzling president of the United States, partly for reasons that you bring out very explicitly in your essay in the, um, in the Brinkley volume. He, has, he literally does not uh, spend uh, as much time as you might expect at the center of government, and he uh, tolerates a cabinet which is loyal to Hamilton rather than himself. And I'm wondering how this pick fits into your under, how, how to explain that, and how it fits into your underlying uh, sense of John Adams. Uh, well, I'll also be curious in, in Dick's thoughts on this question. It seems to me that compared to Washington before and Jefferson who follows, that Adams is a relatively disengaged president. And I think this has a lot to do with his concept of the office, that he ultimately sees it as, as kind of an, an arbiter of balance. And he he basically wants Congress and the cabinet to conduct themselves and to conduct governance, and he will intervene as necessary to protect the republic if mm -hmm. any of these political elites mm -hmm. become more aggressive in pursuing either a regional or a personal agenda. Mm -hmm. But other than that, he, he understands his role to be relatively detached and above the fray. Mm -hmm. I think that actually will give us a very nice transformation into the Jefferson uh, uh, presentation because, as we'll see, uh, Barbara Obert's paper gets very much into the heart of, uh, of T.J. in the present executive mansion and uh, all of its complexity. So let's give, I think we probably do need about five minutes for, uh, and then. I just going to stay here.